Romans chapter 11, we've been uh, seeing Paul closing up this section here of 9, 10, and 11, which seems like his uh, off-the-beaten-path, but as we've realized, it's really important in understanding who God is and how he operates. So when Paul talks in Romans about the righteousness of God, and he is right, and, and Romans is all about his gospel and his good news, it is a good thing that Paul takes his detour to show us uh, even more detail about how God works and how he is a faithful God who keeps his covenants. And so we are glad for that. And so the end of Romans chapter 11 is just this beautiful doxology, uh, a song of praise to God uh, that, that Paul uh, just breaks out into. And so we've been looking at it last week and this week, and we will next week as well. But today I want us to just read uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, and we're going to walk through them and, and see what God says today. So this is God's word in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Last week we looked at the attributes of God found in verse 33. His wisdom and his knowledge. This week we're going to look at the actions of God in verse 33. And then it's evidence in 34 and 35. But his actions being his judgments and his ways. We looked at the first part of verse 33 seeing that God was all wise. And that he was all knowing. The deep unfathomable wisdom of God and the deep unfathomable knowledge of God. We got a glimpse of just how deep his wisdom was. It wasn't just worldly wisdom like you can, I can imagine and, and how you and I make decisions. That's not God's wisdom. Instead, his wisdom was governed by his knowledge. And his knowledge is without end. And so if he's making wise choices based on knowledge that is limitless, that has no end to it, has no bottom and no cap, and that's the knowledge that God is working off of to make wise decisions then we realize just how deep that wisdom even is because of his knowledge, which is so deep and rich and valuable to us. This knowledge of God is to every minuscule molecule, um, molecule in this universe and to the greatest thing as well. There's not a single cell in the created world or uncreated world that God does not know, that he does not know perfectly and all together. He knows everything in every time. Nothing is ever new information to God. So in learning this, we are not only humbled by the depth of his knowledge of us, because you realize he doesn't just know about the molecules. He knows about you and your sinful heart, right? And, and the sinful motives and the sinful attitudes that you can sometimes hide from other people. But God knows them. He knows the depth of them. And he knows the root cause of them. And he knows the end of them. But this humbles us, but in that humbling, we also learned that we have a wonderfully freeing way to pray, that God already knows. So therefore, we can pray with sincerity, not with lofty speech. We don't need to say super fancy things all the time to God. We can just be sincere, just be honest, be short and to the point, be honest, be true with God. That's the beauty of knowing God's infinite knowledge. 
is that we don't have to try to give him new information when we're praying. Like, hey, God, I've got to tell you about this person. Before I ask you for things for them, I must give you a little background on them. No, no, God knows more than you do about even yourself. And so it helps us to pray with sincerity and with honesty. So then today, based on his wisdom and his knowledge, so with that understanding of his wisdom and his knowledge being infinite and perfect and deep, we're going to look at his First and foremost, his judgments, according to the second half of verse 3, it says, How unsearchable are his judgments, or his decrees, things that he has decided. The judgments can take a lot of ways in the Bible. It could just mean um, judging between right and wrong. But the way the Bible often uses this term is his decisions. Because when you make a decision, you've judged over something. This is more valuable than this. And so, this is speaking of God's decrees. What he has decided and set in stone. God's decrees are unsearchable. In that, we cannot know them all. And we cannot know them all fully. Or even wrap our minds around them easily. The ways God has determined to work. The decisions he has made. The judgment calls he has made. We cannot know them all. And we cannot know them all fully. But what do we know about his judgments or his decrees? Do we know anything of them? Well, firstly, we know, according to Scripture, that his decrees, his judgments that are unsearchable, all of them are for his glory. We know that, first and foremost. And what's amazing is when you and I think about life, and we think about this world, and we think about salvation, and we think about eternity, we often think about us first. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, a preacher and commentator, asked these three really good questions to show us we normally do not think of us, uh, of God's glory first. We think of us. Here's the first question he asks. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? He says, we answer, well, to give us a beautiful environment in which we live and work. The Bible says, well, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we often think God made this world so that I have a a wonderful place to live in. He made those mountains so that I might be in awe and, and the trees so that I might breathe and the birds so that I might enjoy their singing. That's why God made these things first. And the Bible says no. Firstly, he made them for his glory. All of them are meant to reflect his goodness and his creation and his love. So another question Boyce asks, he says, um, why did Christ Jesus come into the world? And we often answer, to save us from our sins. That's true, he says. But the greater answer was given by Jesus himself as he prayed in John 17. He says, I have brought glory to you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus says the first reason he came to the earth was to glorify God. Above all else, it was not simply to save you for your sins. The reason Jesus came was to glorify God. That's first. So that's the decision he made, to come onto this earth. We often think it was because of me. No, it was because of him. He became, he he came to this earth, was incarnate for him, for his glory, for his purpose. That was his decision. And then Boyce asks his third question. He says, what will the saints be saying when they stand before his throne in heaven? We suppose that we will be praising God for being so good to us. And we probably will, he says. But the Bible has them saying, to him who sits on the throne, 
to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The Bible says we will not mainly be praising Him for what He has done for us, let's be praising Him for who He is. That's first. And so it's, it's for His glory. So what's amazing is the decrees or the judgments that God has decided in this earth in how He has made things, and how He has brought salvation to us, and how He will save us for eternity, are not first and foremost for us. They're firstly for His glory. That's what we know about His judgments. So these unsearchable judgments, these unsearchable decrees and decisions of God, we can know something of them, that every single one of them is for His glory. The second thing we know about God's decrees or His judgments is that they are eternal. They're eternal. They didn't just, they're not temporary. They did not come into existence at some point. Like, oh, in the year 1980, God decided to do this. No. God's decrees are eternal. He says in Psalm 33:11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His hearts to all generations. They are eternal, meaning that He has decided things before time. We read in Ephesians. That before the foundation of the world, Christ has, He has called us to belong to Christ. Before the foundation of the world, before there was time, in eternity past, for eternity future, if you can even use that term when you're thinking of eternity, this is outside of time, but they are eternal. His purposes did not come into being. They have always been. We know that because that's how God operates. His decrees are eternal. It's important to understand this. You might be thinking, why do, why do we even care uh, what his decisions were, whether they were eternal or temporal, or whether they came in 2005 or not? Why does that matter if God's decrees are eternal or not? We'll realize that God is not just reacting. That's really important. God is not just reacting to things that are happening in the course of history or in the world. God is not simply responding. God has decreed something. God has made a decision based on His purpose and His knowledge. And that is how it will be. So God's not just reacting to a world disaster when He sends Christians in. And when He sends aid. And when there's a church that's flourishing in Nepal, for example. And they had an earthquake years ago. God designed that, that. That there's this unreached people. And missionaries went in just a year prior to when an earthquake happened that destroyed their country. These missionaries were able to convert an entire village. These people who loved God, were serving God, wanted to reach other villages and tribes in the area. They started doing that within the year. One year later, a devastating earthquake came, wiped out pretty much everything they had, but the church was already on the ground. They didn't need to wait for the the North Americans to, to get on their backpacks and their tilly hats and get over there and save the day. They didn't need to wait for that. God was already doing something. He had already decided that there would be Christians on the ground, that their earthquake would come, and that he would get glory through it all. And he didn't just decide it when the earthquake was coming, when he saw, "Uh uh-oh, I see the Richter scale shaking. I better do something. He didn't do that. He had decreed it from before time. His purpose was eternal. He didn't just react to a natural disaster. God doesn't just react to your family trauma or dramatics in your life. And God does not just react to uh, your personal relationship with Him. He doesn't just react. And so that's really important because oftentimes you think God is reacting to how I am today, right? Am I loving God? 
Am I doing well? Am I obeying the commandments? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Is God reacting to me? He's not simply reacting to us. Romans 8 tells us that this is the God who works all things together for our good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That He is working all things. What? According to His purpose. According to His decree. According to His will that He has set. He's working all things together for our good. But it's not according to what we have done. It's according to His eternal purpose. God is not simply reacting. He has decreed things and they are eternal. God is not simply reacting to a circumstance. Instead, he's acting according to his predetermined decision. Then God, if he, if he was reacting, that means that he didn't know something was about to take place. He didn't know there was going to be an earthquake and so he had to figure something out. Or he didn't know that you were going to be disobedient tomorrow so he had to figure something out how he's going to relate to you. Or he didn't know that you would eventually come to find Jesus, so he had to figure something out. No, God is not simply reacting. He does not lack knowledge of anything. It's not possible for God to do that. And so we're glad that God's decrees are eternal, that they are not just for his glory, but they are also eternal. Third, we learn that God's decrees are wise, that all that he decides are in complete, wonderful, perfect wisdom. Psalm 104.24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. His works are made in wisdom. All that he does is not just off the whim. It's not just based on facts that he sees and observes. But it's based on his perfect wisdom, which we learned about last week. His deep and, and limitless wisdom. That's how he works in the world. His, his decrees are wise. The fourth thing we learn about his decrees are they are free. They are free. God is not confined by anything in his decisions. You and I are. We're free to make decisions, but we're, we're confined by our nature. Right? You, you can make the decision if you want to fly and say, I want to fly. But you are confined by what you're able to do. You are confined. And so is Katharina. Oh, dear. She's not able to do what she cannot do, like hold in a puke. Uh, that's okay. But, but God's decisions are free. He's not confined by something holding him back saying, God, you must do this. He is completely free to do as he wills, unlike you and unlike me. It's, it's interesting because we want to, people always want to talk about the decision of free will. You know, do human beings have a free will? Absolutely. But they're confined to a nature. A nature that the Bible says is sinful. And so a sinful nature, would a sinful nature ever choose to love a God who judges sin? No. So we are confined within that sinful nature to do as we please, but we're only going to sin. That's why Romans 8 says that if the man in the flesh, if you're still in that nature, you cannot please God. You can't. In your nature, you cannot and you will not ever please God. But that's where we get a new nature in Christ. We are free only within our confines, but God is not. Every decision he makes is free. So what are some of the judgments and decrees that God has made through history? 
Well, think about the people in the wilderness. That God led the people out of Egypt, right? And he took them into the wilderness. Why would he make that judgment call? Why would he make that decision to take these people into the wilderness? Wasn't that a difficult decision for the people? Was God not right in that decision? Like They, they wandered about. They, they complained and groaned. Was he wrong in his decision? What about the people in exile? God allowed for his people to be taken captive. That's a decision that was for his glory. It was eternal. It was wise. And it was not confined by anything, circumstance otherwise. God made the decision to allow his people to be taken captive by an army. Twice. The Assyrians and the Babylonians. God made that decision. God makes hard decisions. God makes the decision to allow early believers to be martyred. Every single one of the apostles was killed for their faith in a brutal way. God decreed that. He allowed that. He ordained that. In, for His glory, in His wisdom, eternally, not confined by anything. And here in this context of Romans chapter 11, God has decreed that for this time, the Jews are cut off, as he refers to in the olive tree example. They're cut off. God decreed that. That seems hard for us to grasp. So when this verse says, his judgments are unsearchable, this is where we begin to look. And we go, yeah, why would he let the people wander in the wilderness, take the people into exile, Let believers be martyred, not just in the first century, but continually to this day, believers are being killed because of their faith. Jews being cast off for a time. Another judgment of God is that unbelievers will be punished forever. That's a judgment of God, a decree of God. That if someone remains in their sin, they will be judged forever. That is for His glory, it is eternal. It is wise, and it's not confined by something. That's a judgment that is unsearchable of God. That an unbeliever will be punished forever. But then, he also has this amazing decree of Christ. Christ. Who who would save the sinner from that eternal damnation, who would save the sinner if they would repent and believe in him. Simple. And he's decreed it to be simple. Not some complex system that you need to do 500 things in order for Jesus to accept you at the first stage and you better keep them up. No, he has decreed a simple way that if you confess with your lips and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Simple. Simple. It's not based on a checklist. It's simple. And God decreed it for His glory, eternally, in His wisdom, and He is free to make that decision. And think about what that decision looked like. It was a tough judgment that the Father would send His only Son to die. That He would reject His only Son for a time. That he would judge his only son. That he would pour out all of his wrath and his anger on his own son. His perfect son. His lamb without spot or blemish or stain. That he would have him killed at the hand of sinners. How does that make sense? 
That's where things begin to be unsearchable. Unsearchable. But just how, like God's knowledge and wisdom last week were inseparable, this week we see that his judgments and his ways, or his decisions and his acting in the world are also inseparable. So what does it mean by his ways? It means that the path that he decides to take, the path that he decides to lead your life on and and lead everything on, his ways, it says, how inscrutable his ways. You cannot scrutinize God's way, God's path that he determines to bring about, whether that's your path. And that's often normally where we camp out. You know, we can think about other people and, wow, you know, like God really worked in their life that way, but I sure hope he doesn't take my path that way through the path of suffering or the path of persecution. But that is, those two things go together. His, his perfect judgment and his decree from eternity past in all wisdom, he's free to make that decision for his glory, and he does. And his ways that he leads us are often perplexing and downright painful. Perplexing and painful. Think about Israel. Right? They're being chased by an army into a desert wilderness. And then they were delayed in where they were supposed to go. And then they fought battles and then they were delayed some more. They grumbled and grumbled. Was there not an easier way for God to have delivered his people? Like, why all of that wandering about? Was there not an easier way? Or you think about the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, he, he lists the way that God has taken him on. He says it. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. You know, pause right there. We imagine Jesus and him being scourged and him being lashed and him being whipped, right? And we think that's awful. It happened to Jesus twice in his trial. And we imagine just how brutal that was. That he was barely recognizable as a human, right? Paul just said, five times I received that treatment. Five times he was whipped and pulverized, looking like a piece of meat. Five times at the hands of the Jews, I received those 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and they thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety in all the churches. This was the way that God had designed for Paul. This was the path he was taking him on. Wow. Think about, we could want to scrutinize that. Paul could say, hey, was there not a different way that I could have just went? Why did I have to be shipwrecked those many times and float away at sea and be frozen and and be hungry and thirsty? That's the way God designed for Paul to go. And here's the thing, you'll never hear Paul complain about it. Never. He believed in God's ways are perfect and they are inscrutable. Think about Jesus. His way. 
He humbled himself, becoming like man. The only way for you and I to be saved was for him becoming like us, becoming the man of sorrows, rejected, betrayed, mocked, beaten, crucified. This man of... People would have looked at Jesus as this man of great influence, and he had some really amazing powers, and for his way at the end to Calvary, they would have said, that's wasted. That was wasted. That way was wrong for this incredible man. It was a way that people scrutinized. But God's actions and ways in this world are often perplexing and painful. And I'm sure you've experienced such things. Where, where things could have been easier, or things could have been faster, or more comfortable, or without as much hurt. Things could have been a different way. So why then does God work in these ways? Why does he take us on these paths? Ways we must not scrutinize. Well, Paul says, he gives us a couple of reasons. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says, Again, he's recounting another trial he and the brothers face. He says, Indeed, we had felt we had received the sentence of death. And he tells us why. God had given him an understanding of why. He says, But it was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Oftentimes we rely so heavily upon ourselves, we, we think so much of ourselves. What's the only way God might be able to break that in you? Probably by showing you how weak you are, right? The way that you have determined is not going to work, and God's going to show you. He needs to show you how weak you are. So he needs to show us, and then Paul also mentions to keep you from being conceited, right? He says that in his own trials. But to make us not rely on ourselves is one reason God leads us on the ways he does. Another reason is found in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16-18. He begins with it. He says, so we do not lose heart. So in order to not lose heart. There's so many things that are disheartening in this life. People that don't understand you. People that don't get you. People that accuse you wrongly. People that slander you. People that treat you poorly. We lose heart. We lose heart when we want to share the gospel with someone and they reject us outright. We lose heart when we go to the bank and you realize... I'm in trouble. You lose heart when you look around and your relationships are crumbling. You lose heart when you hear of people suffering. So then, he says, a reason God leads us on the way he does is so that we do not lose heart. He carries on, he says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So that's where we're not losing heart. He's giving us an eternal perspective when we're so busy maybe looking horizontally at our relationships that may be broken, or at uh, things on this earth that, that we don't get, or we don't have, or that aren't working. He says, don't lose heart. Look heavenward. And the way God does that in you and in me to cause us not to lose heart is by breaking those things 
and making those things and allowing those things to fall apart and crumble before you. All the things you might have had security in and comfort in, a a good, wonderful family where everyone gets along and a full bank account that just keeps filling and you don't know where from. He rips that all away so that nothing's cushy. And you can go, this life is not all it's cracked up to be. And there's got to be more than this. And he says, don't lose heart. All of these momentary afflictions are preparing us for eternity to say, oh man, the the comparison is not even there. So don't lose heart. That's another reason God leads us on the way he does. It's why we go through trials and struggles, pain and perplexing situations is so that we would not lose heart. Another reason he leads us on the way he does is ultimately for his glory. First Peter, Peter says it. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though it were something strange were happening to you. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's preparing us to rejoice. Don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes to test you. It's for your joy. And it's for his glory. The way that God leads us is often perplexing and painful. And here in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, it says that it is inscrutable. We cannot, because we are not all-wise and all-knowing, because we are confined and we are not as free as we think we are, we cannot and we must not scrutinize God's ways and think, I could have done better. I had a better idea. We'll often do this, right? We'll often present a plan to God. Here, God, I'm praying about this thing. Here's the path I'm taking. Bless it. That's it, right? We've set our... <laughs> we've set in the destination. We've set in the way we're getting there. And he says, okay, you want to go there? You're going to take the long way around. Um, when I was a kid, I used to take the shortcut. I'd be camping with my family. And uh, I'd say, hey, listen, I know a shortcut in the campground, right? We're in Algonquin Park, wherever we are. So I know a shortcut. And we'd end up like an hour late to getting to the beach. Everybody else is already there. It's like, I thought you needed a shortcut. It's like, yeah, that was my way. Uh, you may not understood it, but it was good for us or we, you know, whatever. That's how God works. He says, you think you got this path. He says, I'm going to take you a different way because it's good for you. Because it's for my glory. Because you need it. Don't lose heart. See his glory revealed. What is the ground for such a statement? How can Paul say that God's uh, unsearchable judgments and God's inscrutable ways that we must just submit to them? Well, the ground is in the next verse. It says, for. Verse 34, it's quoting from Isaiah. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's, Who's known the mind of the Lord? This quote from Isaiah says, well, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And it carries on. It says, what man shows his counsel? Who has been his counselor? Have you counseled God? Do you know his mind? Do you know how he's working? Do you know what he's got planned for tomorrow? Well, you don't. Can you counsel God on the way that he should work in your life and and arrange things for you tomorrow? You can't counsel God. You, You don't know his mind. You don't know anything in comparison to God. And so, why would we ever scrutinize his ways? Don't you, don't you really believe that God is perfect in all his ways and knows all things? And so, therefore, when he's leading you in this way, even if it's perplexing and painful, like, trust him. Trust him. 
that he knows better than you do. Trust him. Because we've not known his mind. We've not been his counselor. I love in, in Job, we are talking about Job last week, but one of Job's friends pipes in, his name's Elihu, and he says something of truth. He says, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, God, you've done wrong? Who can ever accuse God of doing wrong? Who knows better than God to tell him that wasn't the way you should have done it, God? And try to counsel God. No one. No one can tell God that he has done wrong. And he says further on in this quote in verse 35, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The idea there is, What does God owe you? What what does he owe you? God responds to Job and his friends. In Job 41, 11, he says, Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. Everything is mine. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you've received it, why do you boast as if you've not received it? What do you have that you did not receive? Everything. Everything you've received. There's nothing on the list that you said, well, I did this without receiving something. So even if, oftentimes people want to take credit for their own work, right? But then you say, well, didn't God give you the hands to do that? Didn't God give you the ability? Didn't God give you this or that? At the end of everything is God. You've received everything from God. Life and breath. Gifts and abilities. Family and friends. Forgiveness and eternal salvation. What do you have that you did not receive? God has not given us some token because of our own righteousness. Like, oh, you did something? Well, I'll give you something back. It's not an exchange He's not looked on us and said, well, you've done good enough, now here you go. He doesn't owe us anything that that our righteousness did God some good or something. It didn't. He doesn't owe us anything. And most of us agree with that truth, that God doesn't owe us a thing. But we need to be so careful and ask God to guard our hearts because it's often in the midst of a trial or real extreme pain where people fail on this point where they think all of a sudden that God owes them something, like health, or pain-free end, or whatever it may be. I've heard multiple people say, I went to church my whole life and this is what I get. Hmm. They didn't get God. They may have went to church their whole life, but did they get God? Or perhaps in a moment they were at a lapse of judgment, or they were tempted to say that false um, statement, gone to church my whole life, but this is what I get. Speaking of pain or trials, God owes us nothing. And yet in his unsearchable judgments and his inscrutable ways, he has made the most peculiar way for you to be forgiven. He owes you nothing, remember? Life, breath, family, friends, gifts, abilities, all those things do not compare to what he's given you in Christ. Forgiveness of your sins and salvation eternal. He did not owe you it. 
And the way in which he did it was so unsearchable. And no one could scrutinize his way. He, in Christ Jesus, has come to die, to live again, so that we may be free. So that we may then live for him. Live for him, not necessarily in peace and prosperity, but live for him in submission and love. So we trust him. We trust him in his perfect ways. With each circumstance that comes, with each pain, each unexpected turn in your life, each trying delay in your life, go again to this song of praise that Paul wrote and say, yeah, oh, the depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? What what does God owe me? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then you realize the end verse, which we'll look at next week. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we need your help. Uh, We are um, people who like to be in control. We're people who like to understand everything and even take credit for things. So God, we pray that you would humble us and and show us and break us. And we are so glad for your ways that you do that more than we like. That you do show us how weak we are and how much we do not know and how unable we are. God, thank you. Thank you for your ways that we can never scrutinize you for. Thank you for your judgments, your decrees that were eternal and they're for your glory. We thank you that you've made decisions uh, in this life and how you will operate in this world so that you would receive all honor and glory. God, help us because we, we don't do well to trust you. And we need to confess that. And we need forgiveness for that. But we are so glad for your greatest way. That is the way of salvation through Christ the Son. Thank you so much. Thank you for a way that made no sense. It's simple. It was costly. And it means everything to us. Thank you. So God, would you humble us by the truth of your gospel again and again. Help us daily as we face trials, as we face pains, to trust that you are working for our good. It doesn't mean our prosperity It doesn't mean our peace, but you're working for our good, our eternal good. You're preparing us for the eternal way to glory. Oh God, we are so thankful. Would you give us more of that? Whatever it may look like, God, your ways are perfect. Help us to trust you with all we are. In Jesus' name.